This is episode 16 of the Prepper Website Podcast. Today we are looking at articles that deal with dysentery and survival situations, 10 requirements for long-term food storage, are you planning to fail of SHTF, and pack your 72-hour emergency kit in organized categories. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily aggregator of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey guys, I want to say that um, I, I, I've looked at the, uh, the stats and I am, or at least the Friday's episode was downloaded 199 times. And so I'm very, very excited about that. Uh, just because I'm new to podcasting, I don't have a lot of information about that or you know specifics about the the industry. I joined a Facebook group, and one of the uh, you know somebody had said, "Hey, they've been doing it for months, and they only have 20 downloads." And I'm like, "Wow!" So I, I feel very blessed and very thankful that people are out there. They're sharing uh, the the podcast, and they're getting the information out there. Uh, I know that like, there's there's a couple of websites that have been sharing it. I, I just the ones that I know of like Bee Survival, uh, Organic Prepper, and then Backdoor Survival put it out in a newsletter. And I know there's a lot of other people that are sharing it out. Those are just the ones that I know of right now. And then people are hitting it from from all over the place all on the internet. So I, I'm really thankful, really grateful for that. And I just see it that it's continuing to go, and and uh, the audience is getting wider and bigger. And I just really appreciate that. So let's go ahead and get started with uh, our articles today. This first one comes to us from Doom and Bloom. Love Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. They're one of my favorite people. They have, uh, they've been over to the house and they have uh, eaten dinner with us when they've come to Houston. So uh, they're really great, genuine people. All right. So uh, when uh, you know, their website was one of the first ones that I ever hit because uh, I think medical preparedness is so important. So that's why I... I always I always talk about medical preparation, at least try to read their articles. If you go over to the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com and on the right-hand sidebar, you'll see some tags there, and you'll see that medical preparedness is, is, is a lot bigger because I've done more articles on that and tagged that the most. All right, so let's go ahead and get started on this one. This one's called Dysentery in Survival Settings, and this is an important one. In survival scenarios, many believe that trauma from gunfights at the OK Corral will cause the most deaths. The truth, however, is that many avoidable losses will occur due to more basic issues, such as dehydration from infectious diarrhea diseases. They most often occur from failure to assure the sterilization of water, proper preparation of food, and safe disposal of human waste. One of the many duties of the medic in austere settings is to supervise these activities. I've written about some of these diseases before, such as cholera, but I haven't discussed dysentery in much detail. The World Health Organization defines dysentery as diarrhea in which blood is pre present in loose, watery bowel movements. Unlike cholera, dysentery is a diarrheal disease that can be caused by several different organisms. It can be spread from human to human or less commonly from animals to humans. Most cases of diarrhea are mild and easily treated with fluids and avoidance of certain food products like dairy. Dysentery, however, is a more serious form where inflammation of the large intestine causes watery stools mixed with blood, pus, and mucus. Okay, nasty. On this one, that's one of the, you know, one of the ones that like you really are thankful that they don't have a graphic on, on this one. 
There are two types of dysentery. Bacillary, most often caused by several variants of the bacteria family Shigella, but E. coli, Salmonella, and Campylobacter may also be involved. And that's, again, I just, I know, I never read those words right. So Dr. Bones, forgive me for that one. Uh, the second type is amoebic. A parasite into amoeba histolicta is more commonly seen in tropical and subtropical climates. Dysentery was the cause of death of many soldiers in the Civil War. In total, infectious diseases like cholera, typhoid, and other, others killed more men than bullets or shrapnel. Signs and symptoms of dysentery. About 2 to 10 days after infection, the patient will begin to show symptoms. Some will experience mild effects, but others will progress to more severe disease. Besides frequent watery stools mixed with blood and mucus, sometimes 20 to 30 times a day, you may see high fevers, abdominal pain and bloating, excessive gas, loss of appetite, weakness and fatigue, urgent need to evacuate, vomiting. All of, all of the above leads to significant dehydration, which is complicated in severe bacillary dysentery by erosion of the lining of the gut, leading to ulcers that cause bleeding from the rectum. Combined with the effect of bacterial toxins, death may occur quickly without antibiotic therapy and IV fluids. Amoebic dysentery may follow a similar course or be more prolonged in nature, leading to a weakened system and the formation of pockets of pus in the liver. Treating dysentery. As you can imagine, any form of the disease will greatly decrease the chance for survival off the grid. As the well-prepared medic can intervene early with certain medicines, a high index of suspicion will decrease avoidable deaths. For bacillary dysentery like that caused by Shigella, antibiotics like ciprofloxin or fish flox, or erythromycin, aquatic erythromycin, are used as treatment. Amoebic dysentery can be treated with an antiparasitic drug such as metro, metro in the soil, fish soil. Dosings can be found in our book, The Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medicine Help, Medical Help is Not on the Way, or in various articles at doomandbloom.net. Lopramide, or Imodium, and Peptobismol, uh, Bithmocilicate, and that's like, I guess, the official medical term there for it, are additional items that will be used, useful tools in the medical woodshed. Of course, it's essential, es I'm sorry, of course, it's especially important to rehydrate victims aggressively. Oral rehydration salts contain electrolytes that will more effectively aid recovery. These can be purchased commercially or improvised using the fo following formula. To one liter of water, two liters for children, add six to eight teaspoons of sugar, one and a half to three-fourths teaspoon of salt, one-fourth to one and a half teaspoons of salt substitute used by people who can't use regular salt, this item has potassium, an important electrolyte, and can be found whenever salt, regular salt is found, and a pinch of baking soda for bicarbonate. Prevention. Prevention of dysentery requires understanding of how it's spread. Transmission often occurs by infected individuals who handle food without washing first or use ster unsterilized water. Some people may carry the organisms and show no symptoms, at least for a time. As contamination with human feces is a big factor, the medic has to closely supervise the building and use of latrines and other facilities. Dysentery is just one of the issues that can cause headaches and heartaches for the survival medic. With some knowledge and supplies, you'll have a better chance to keep your family safe in times of trouble. 
So when I was thinking of the, uh, you know, going to the restroom, 10 to, what is it, 20 to 30 times, or it's possible to go 20 to 30 times a day, when you're thinking about the supplies that you have and you're in a grid down situation and you have, um, you know, you're, you're looking at certain certain supplies, you will run through that really, really quick if someone is going 20 to 30 times a day. And not only that, so whatever situation you have for them to be able to use the restroom and whatever situation you have for other people to use the restroom, you're going to want to keep them separate. So, I mean, that's a pretty important thing to consider. Uh, I would, if I was you, go and get this the recipe for uh, the rehydration uh, that he gives here, the, the teaspoons of sugar and salt and, and a pinch of uh, baking soda. I would just have that readily available somewhere. And then I just want to say here is that it's so, so important to get their book. Uh, you can go to their website and you can click it there or in, and go to Amazon or I have it on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. I've linked to Amazon there. I've also linked to... Um, I've done two reviews. I've done, uh, I did one at the, when they first uh, put it out, and then I did another one when they updated it. So you want to get the updated version that came out in June 2016. Make sure you get that one because on Amazon it'll show you uh, very easily where you know which, what version it is. So you want to get that one and make sure you have that because that is um, that's just a very valuable resource. So if you go, I also link to on the prepperwebsitepodcast.com. I also linked to the uh, the reviews that I did. So the first review, I just it's just all kind of uh, it's just all written. But on the second review, I actually took pictures of uh, the table of contents. So you get to see all the stuff that's in there, and you'll just see that it's it's a well worth it book to have. It's one of the ones that I completely recommend that everyone should have uh, without a doubt. All right, so go go get that book if you don't have that one. All right, so let's go ahead and jump to the next one. Uh, this comes to us from Prepper's Will, and uh, it, the title of this one is 10 Requirements for Long-Term Food Storage. Guys, food storage is so important. There's just no reason at all for, for no one to be storing food. There's just, it's just so easy to do, all right? So when we talk about food storage, we think about big, you know, pallets of food and, and things like that. Not necessarily, all right? So let's go ahead and get uh, get to this one, 10 Requirements for Long-Term Food Storage from Prepper's Will. Um, we live in a world where a disaster is bound to hit us sooner or later. Food storage is one of the basics of emergency preparedness and it requires proper planning. No matter how you look at things, food will always become your number one priority during a long-term disaster. Having a well-equipped pantry doesn't necessarily make you a prepper. It has become a requirement of the times we live in. Food storage will make survival possible during an emergency scenario, may it be regional or national. Regardless of what your feeling towards preparedness are, you should at least have a week's worth of food in your home. For those planning for a long-term disaster, the food storage requirements are much more complex. There are a few things that need to be covered in order to make sure the food is still edible a few years from now. Here's what you should keep in mind when it comes to storing food. Number one, keep it cool. Storing your food in a place that is prone to temperature variations must be avoided. Heat ex accelerates bacterial activity and enzymatic processes. Wow. These are known to cause food spoilage regardless how you pack your food supplies. Food storage requires a space where heat sources shouldn't be present. Many people store food in their basement and they forget to notice that even a water heater can raise the temperature in the entire room. Number two, store in the dark. 
Light is another element that can compromise your food storage. The light energy will break down proteins in food, but it also heats it. Heat from inside the canned goods allows the air in the headspace to expand. It will break open the seal, allowing microorganisms to contaminate the food. Some containers, depending on the food content, may even explode. Besides contaminating the other items from your pantry, you will also have to do a lot of cleanup. In food that contains fats or oils, sunlight may, may accelerate rancidity. Keep it airtight. If your food is exposed to oxygen, it begins to break down and nutrients degrade rapidly. Fungi and microorganisms need an oxygenated environment to thrive. Leaving behind an environment without oxygen will make it impossible for bacteria and fungi to occur. Oxidation will cause rust and your cans will degrade, causing leakage. Use a vacuum sealer to seal food tightly in plastic or mylar bags. Number four, think about what your family eats. If you think about it, 500 pounds of grains looks great in your pantry, but that's pretty much it. Eating only certain types of food can get tedious in the long term and it will create appetite fatigue. This is the most common mistake and most people don't have enough variety in their storage. Food variety is essential when it comes to storing food and it's better to know the eating habits of your family members. Make a list with what your family likes to eat and store the ingredients that are needed to cook those tasty meals. In times you will learn what items you need to store and you will discover what's missing. Number five, always rotate your stock. Food storage implies you should feed your family with the foods from your pantry. You should do so regardless if you're facing a crisis or not. People are storing foods without knowing what to do with it. You should put your pantry to the best and I suggest you do it sooner rather than later. I'm sorry. You should put your pantry to the test and I suggest you do it sooner rather than later. Try to live one week with only what you can prepare from the items available in your pantry. Write down what went wrong, what you are missing, and how the overall experience was. Make sure you replace what you eat to keep a constant food storage. Number six, buy cheaper and spread the cost. When it comes to food storage, preparing food, a food stock for the entire family can be quite expensive. If you have like-minded families in your neighborhood, try to work together. For example, you could buy large quantities of food in bulk and take advantage of sales. You could divide the cost and the items between buyers and it will cost you less than prepping on your own. Another good idea would be to split the cost of freeze dryer of cost of a freeze dryer between neighbors so that everyone could benefit from freeze drying their own food. This food is a must when it comes to food storage and it is much cheaper to freeze dry it at home. Number seven, store spice and seasonings. Your food storage plan should include dry seasonings. For example, dry herbs have a long shelf life if stored properly. It is important that you store flavorings such as tomatoes, bouillon, and onions. Make sure you also include a good supply of spices you like to cook with. These can make a world of difference when you are forced to prepare bland foods. They help young ones and old people to better deal with restrictive diet and can change their mood if used properly. Don't make it a one-man effort. Learn how to get all your family members involved into your food storage plans. Everything can be done easier if you have moral support and if others are giving a helping hand. For example, drying jerky with the kids can be a fun and educational experience. Involve them into checking and the pantry's temperature, cleaning it, rotating the food, checking and discarding compromised food items, etc. If you have kids, you can do it together or ask them to do it once they get the hang of it. It will make, make them more responsible and it will keep your pantry safe. Number nine, think about water as well. When people plan to stockpile water, they fail to realize that the content of their pantry will influence their storage numbers. Dehydrated foods require to be reconstituted in order to eat it. 
Making soup requires water as well. The way you cook your food and the items you store may require for you to recalculate your water supplies. Food storage goes hand in hand with water storage. Once you decide how much water you should be storing, take a good look at the items inside your pantry. I guarantee you will have to supplement the initial stock with at least 10% more. Number 10. Always have a backup plan. Another aspect that is neglected when it comes to food storage is not having a plan B. What will you do when the food runs out or when your home is raided? These are questions that you should have an answer for. Some people have all sorts of food production methods while others stockpile items for bartering. There are those that form communities to pool resources and accomplish more than they might on their own. Regardless how you look at things, you should implement a backup plan. After all, we hope for the best and we prepare for the worst. Food storage requires a lot of careful planning and investment. You will not be able to survive a long-term disaster without having the basics covered. Food storage becomes a main concern when you are preparedness like-minded. The requirements listed above will help you keep your pantry safe and will make sure your food lasts. Okay, that's a good article, basic information, but you know, there's a lot of people, new people always coming to preparedness and good information for new people to understand and to know. And then also good reminders for those who, uh, those of us who've been prepping for a long time and just, you know, we tend to just forget things and, and uh, to kind of roll with it. So good information there on long-term food storage. All right, moving right along, uh, we're at the Prepper Journal and this is titled, Are You Planning to Fail if SHTF? And uh, again, all these articles, I link to them on the Prepper website, podcast.com, but all the articles have links and stuff to them, so you want to visit them and uh, check out the links because they're, they're linking to other articles that kind of support what they're talking about. And uh, so you definitely want to check those out. All right, so here we go. Let's start, let's start on this one. <clears throat> you can encap- encapsulate just about anything in the world of prepping under one simple word planning. Preppers are planning for different scenarios where they must implement one or more plans for how to deal with various aspects of said scenario. We plan on how we will act, what prepping supplies we will need to acquire, and we plan how to talk to family members and avoid neighbors. Preppers plan for medical emergencies by selecting the right medical supplies, books and resources such as wilderness training to put us in a better position to render first aid to wounded family and friends, We plan for economic collapse by investing in precious metals or diversifying our incomes by a second or even third job. Preppers plan to bug out and deal with violent confrontations from displaced and possibly hostile individuals or groups that will stop at nothing, including your life to survive themselves. Gardens, food, shelter, alternate power, FEMA, government abuses, and on and on, we have our plans. But are you planning to fail? Is what you are doing really a plan at all? What is your prepping plan? I have written a few articles on the subject of planning with respect to prepping because it seems to me like a logical step, but I was reminded of this topic again while while planning a backpacking trip with a small group of my daughter's friends. We would be going into the woods in a remote location that I had been to before, but my plan focused on me really. The basics I knew I would need to take into consideration and I had not fully appreciated the group of kids that I hardly knew. I hadn't expanded my scope of thinking outside of my own little bubble. Almost instinctively, I was making lists in my head of what gear I would need and where it was stored. Mentally, I calculated the weight I would be packing in and pictured myself walking through the woods with my faithful dog and a bunch of teenagers lagging somewhere on the trail behind me. 
It didn't take long for me to figure out that I certainly couldn't plan on each of these kids knowing what they would were getting into and what they would need. I started out writing a list of the basics. Who, what, when, where, and how. I left out the why because I don't need an excuse to go, lie, go live in the woods for a few days. I've been waiting for almost a year for the opportunity. In my revised plan, I focused on what they would each need to have, the conditions of the voyage into the great unknown, and many details the parents would likely need to know. Before long, my plan was a two-page Word doc that my daughter laughingly said, Detailed enough, Dad? It's a simplistic example, but I started thinking about my prepping plans considering that exercise. A list isn't a plan. When I started prepping, the first thing I did resembling a plan was to write out a list a long list of the items I thought I needed to focus on in order to be prepared. I still have that list around here somewhere, but I remember exactly the types of things I scribbled down back so many years ago. There were sections for food, water, shelter, security, finances, gardening, and medical. Each section had a list of items, a list of items I knew from my research could help me and my family. It was a good start, but just writing down these supplies I needed wasn't really a plan. It was a shopping list. My list helped me get started with the acquisition of food. I was able to focus on a first, on first a 30-day supply of food, and that grew as I had other items checked off. My list was constantly being analyzed for priority. If I got an extra $100 to spend, I would look at my list and see where I had the biggest hole in my preps and move in that direction. Some months I was able to cross items off my list, and other months I wasn't able to. It helped me, but again, this was not a plan. Having tons of supplies isn't a plan. Eventually, my supplies started to add up, and I was feeling more comfortable with the odds of my family being able to survive. I still didn't have a plan other than to stay in my house and use the supplies we had been scraping together. I had a supply of ammo, weapons, rain barrels, or garden. our garden was started, and the pantry was filled with canned beans, rice, and corn. I had freeze-dried food under the beds and medical supplies stashed in bins at the bottom of closets, but after all this... The only thing I could really say was that my plan was not to need to go to the store for a while. I could sit pretty while the world collapsed, at least for some time. It wasn't too long after that I realized a few things. No matter how much you stock up, it will run out eventually. Your plan to stay on, on your piece of land might, not need, might, n might need to change against your wishes. If the world goes to hell, your reality will likely change. Your health responsibilities, and abilities could all suffer in a long-term collapse. Going back to my backpacking analogy, I started to reflect on all the other people whose lives could impact my prepping ideals. It is, it, is a, it is wise to take these other people into account when I made my plans. My neighbors, the people down the street, law enforcement, rescue services, the military, gangs, relatives, friends, a disaster will likely be a dynamic event that you will have to adjust to and make changes to your plans on a daily basis in some cases. A warehouse of supplies is nice, but what if you are forced to leave all those behind? So in some ways, all the work we think of as being the bulk of prepping, the accumulation of gear, guns, ammo, and supplies only gets us maybe 15% of the way to this mythical point of preparedness. The rest is what we will do with those supplies we have accumulated how we will use them with our families in various situations, how we will ensure the use is done in a manner consistent with how you envision them when you purchase the supplies. Do we need to ration and when? Who can access the supplies and how will you deal with resupply? Who will you share with and what are you prepared to do in situations where you don't want to share? But that's just the stuff 
part of it. There is so much more. Prepping is not simply distilled only to the acquisition of gear. You should not relax when you have a pantry full of food and some camping gear and a rifle or two. Granted, that will put you ahead of many people, but that is only a short-term gain. If you are searching for true preparedness, your plans must begin to imagine a life without many of those supplies you have stockpiled, because in a true grid-down disaster, end-of-the-world calamity that you are imagining, there is pretty good chance your MREs will be long gone, your ammo could be gone, and any medical supplies you had might have vanished months ago. For me, a true prepping plan is being able to live without any of the supplies I am stocking up. I am pointed in the direction now with efforts on self-reliant power, food, production, and living off the land as much as possible. Does that mean I am not stocking up anything and I am only going to be prepared to eat bark and roots? Nope. But I won't be sitting in my suburban bunker eating my canned peaches watching DVDs on my solar-powered player either as the world burns outside. The supplies will only buy me time. That time is going to need to be spent on many initiatives that will lend themselves to survival. Survival for my family and everyone I can bring along with me. What are your prepping plans? Very important article uh, because I think there are a lot, you know, in my, I'm very, I'm very open with everyone that I meet that I, I prepare, uh, that, I, that I'm a prepper and I, I uh, you know, I believe in preparedness. So even at work and, and all of that kind of stuff, and people always jokingly say, hey, we're just going to come over to your house and, and all that kind of stuff. And I always tell them, well, I'm not going to be here. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be at my dad's place up in the country. So, um, but jokingly, I, I tell them all that. And so they know that, that you know, preparedness is a, a part of my, my life. And so I'm talking about that. From the very, very beginning, though, I always believed that it wasn't enough just to store gear. Because what I was saying, well, what I was getting to there and before I said that, was there's a lot of people out there who are stocking up on gear, that are stocking up on items and on things, and they think they're prepared. <clears throat> From the very beginning for me, it was always about how can I, re I was thinking long term, how can I use this and yes, there's definitely short-term preparation. There's things like we live in Houston, we get hit with hurricanes, power goes out, all that kind of stuff. But my idea was always if there was a real situation where it was real grid down, collapse type, you know, looking to the future and how long could we go and what kinds of things do we need to put in place. So I'm really grateful for, uh, for this article at the Prepper Journal because it starts to think along those lines. Like how can we go past just, what we what we have in our homes and in our with our gear and not just be dependent upon that. So a lot of good information. You know, one of the things I'm going to link to, I have a I have a, a place on the Prepper website or Prepper website that uh, links to all the Tag Cloud information. Uh, and so I have this big Tag Cloud of all the articles that we have ever linked to on Prepper website, and it's humongous. And um, I, I've linked to articles with plans and plan. And what I'm going to do is I'll link to that tag cloud on um, on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. So those of you that are listening to it and you might not have ever come to PrepperWebsite.com can link to it very easily. And you can search all the articles that have been written on plan uh, or plans, uh, Prepper plans, and just, you know, maybe that would help you a little bit. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and do that when I upload this uh, this episode. All right, this last article uh, comes to us from modernsurvivalblog.com. It's a short article, and I just kind of throw it out there, not only for just a quick information, but also for the comments, because uh, Ken has a lot of great 
um, a, a good community over at, at uh, Modern Survival, and, and they um, they really participate. And you can learn a lot from comments. So I just wanted to let you know because at the time that I'm uh, I'm reading this, there's there's like 44 comments, and it you know recently came out. So um, this article is titled "Pack Your 72-Hour Emergency Kit in Organized Categories." While it can be fun to pack your own 72-hour emergency kit and to modify it now and again, don't lose sight of the various categories for the stuff inside so that you cover all the bases, so to speak. Let me rewind for just a second. What is the purpose of a 72-hour emergency kit? The answer may be a bit different for everyone, but the general purpose is to provide emergency preparedness supplies to assist in your survival and well-being for several days or more during a time when you might need it. Some people refer to this kit as a bug out bag or a bob. The reality is that the differentiating lines get blurred, but that's okay given that their purpose is generally smaller. So let's get back to the category of preps that may go into one of these emergency kits. Note, the fun thing about any survival kit is that you can tailor them to specific needs, specific scenarios, and specific methods of carry and travel. You might put a small lightweight kit together to easily carry during a day hike. Perhaps a, set, a larger 72-hour kit that's kept in your car. You might also put together a bob kept in a closet at home specifically for an emergency evac or bug out. The sky's the limit to your own intended uses. Categories of preps within a 72-hour emergency kit. If you think in terms of prep categories, it might be easier to put it all together without forgetting something important. It might also make it easier to organize and pack in such a way that is more convenient. For example, the individual components of the fire starter kit within each of my overall kits are always kept in one place, pouch, a Ziploc bag within the kit itself. The first aid kit portion of the overall 72-hour kit is similarly kept in one area of the bag, generally within its own Ziploc bag. Love the Ziplocs for the waterproofing. Good idea there. Uh, category to, categories to consider. Water, food, fire, shelter, security, medical, like prescriptions, pain, etc., First aid, trauma, bandages, splints, tweezers, scissors, wound irrigation, etc. Tools, clothes, pets. Once you have identified the major categorical groups, you can then drill down to the specifics within each group. Unfortunately, your kit will be limited and restricted to the size of the bag, which itself will be constrained to your own intended uses, your ability to carry, and where it will all be stored. It's easy to put too much in a kit. We all want to have everything that we might need. However, it may get to the point where you're going to say to yourself, we're going to need a bigger boat. One of the top all-time movie moments, Jaws. Love that movie. This can be the challenging part of building any survival kit, whittling it down to necessities versus wants if your space is limited. Although if kept in a vehicle, you might have the ability to spread the kit around versus all being kept in a single bag or pack. Okay, I put it out there, the idea for categorical organization to one's kit and have listed several categories. Let's hear your own recommendations of categories and the way that you trim your own kit, including what you, have, what you need without having to get a bigger boat. So again, you have all the comments and a lot of people there. And so I would say on the 72-hour kit, again, going back to the plan, the article that we just read or just listened to, um, for your 72-hour kit, you have to have a plan. So what are you going to do if, if, you're, if you have to leave and you're gone for 72 hours? So if you're going and you're going to go camp out, 
that idea, that kit is going to look very, very different than if you're going to spend 72 hours and you're just driving to a hotel uh, out of the way, right? And so you really need to kind of consider that and definitely tailor your bag to whatever you're going to, um, to your plans, to your preparedness plans. All right, guys, so that's it for this episode. Hey, again, thank you so much for all the love that's out there, everybody who's supporting the, uh, the podcast. I really do appreciate that. And everyone who supports PrepperWebsite.com, that comes to it daily. Uh, I really do appreciate that. So if you would, if you get that opportunity to share out the podcast with uh, those of your friends on social media, then that's just a great um, just a great blessing to me. We've made it very easy for you to go to the website, theprepperwebsitepodcast.com, and share it. All the, we have the, all the social media links out there. And so you can just share it out there, and, and uh, you know, that would be a big blessing to us. Then also word of mouth. It's always, that's always a big blessing as well. So uh, if you have a chance, come by the website or uh, you know, drop me a line or come by Facebook or Twitter or Instagram and, and drop me a line there. I like to always hear from people. Uh, one of the things I'm, I'm doing while I'm recording this is I am on Facebook Live recording this and uh, looking at people that are on there. and Got a, got a couple of people up there, so hi to everyone there. But again, thanks so much for uh, listening to the podcast. And uh, we will be back tomorrow for more great articles. If you need more of a preparedness fix, be sure to visit PrepperWebsite.com for, um, for other great preparedness uh, articles and information. So until next time, stay prepped and aware. Peace.